You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Just a reminder that there's, um, this is Family Sunday, so there is no children's services or, or nursery. But with that in mind, we do have handout sheets. So if you didn't get a handout sheet, stick up your hand and one of the ushers will, will grab you one. And you ran out. Okay, you might have to share. But anyway, at the end, if you fill in the sheet, go back and see Mr. 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 and Mrs. Gordon and they'll give you some candy. So... We all have a job to do. A baby's job is to grow. A toddler's job is to walk and talk. As children, our function is to learn through school or playing. As adults, we are to provide for our families and communities and nurture their growth. As you become a senior, we are to impart our wisdom to younger generation. We all have this purpose at each stage of life, something that requires effort, something that we do on an ongoing basis. For ease of understanding today, I'm going to call these, these efforts, these jobs or tasks during this stage of life work. So we are in the 14th week of our in-depth sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week, Paul did a great job of taking us through the first 10 verses of chapter 9, This week, I was given the section of 29 verses spread over two different chapters, taking us to the end of chapter 10. It's quite a large section of scripture. I honestly found it a little bit daunting. So today, I decided to take a 30,000 viewpoint of this and focusing on a big picture and trying to really focus in on life applications. So before we head into our text for today, let us commit this time of the word to the Lord. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, I pray that you would open our ears and minds to the wisdom found in your word. I pray that you would use this broken servant, a sinful man, to exposit this text, that I would not make any of this about me, that everything would point to you, your truth, and ultimately your glory. We pray these things in the holy name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Everybody should know the drill by now. If you didn't bring a Bible today, one should be in the pew in front of you. If you don't have a Bible that you can easily understand, just just take this one as our gift to you. So today we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and 10. So find that spot in the Bible, and I'll be referring to that throughout the rest of this service this morning. So the author of Ecclesiastes faced questions. When life is over, what have I gained? And where does my satisfaction come from? Thus far, he has shown us that we will not find satisfaction in knowledge, pleasure, achievement, power, wealth, or spoiler alert, we won't come from our work either. So knowing that, do we just go through the motions of our school and our jobs? Do we put any effort on a a test we're going to take at school? Do we study? Or do we just do enough to squeak by? Or do we take jobs just to pay the bill? A passionless job that we do not find pleasurable for the next 35 years? 
Then we throw in the mix that life is hard. We are faced with tragedy, challenges, injustice, lack of opportunities. Do we or should we play it safe or even just give up and depend on the government? I think from our first section of scripture today and our first sermon point that that's not the case. We are to work enthusiastically and might add, even if the results are uncertain. So let's turn, turn to chapter 9, starting in verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun that race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happens to them all. For man does not know his time, like a fish that are taken up in an evil net, and like birds that are caught up in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So whenever I think of work in a biblical context, I think of Colossians 3, 23 to 25. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus. So let's look at it this way. We're to serve God in everything we do. Of course, we serve others, but we should have the stance that our one true loyalty and reasoning to do our best is in the service of our heavenly king. We do it with enthusiasm and energy unto the Lord. We only get one shot at life, and we must, as we get 85 years or so on this earth. So let's live this with enthusiasm. We have one opportunity to make our contributions, so make it count, as we don't have any sense of guarantees of how many years of life will be, will be given. There are five traits listed in verse 11 that are attributes that should lock up success. Speed, strength, wisdom, wealth, and intelligence. We all grew up with that guy or girl that just seemed to be born for success. They had it all going for them and likely thought that success was waiting for them in the wings. But fast forward to your high school reunion in 15 years that you'll find out that life happens. It throws curveballs and success wasn't in the cards for those that you had identified as the most likely to succeed. You may even ask yourselves, what on earth happened to that guy? So no matter how much ability and talent we may have been blessed with, life's twists and turns take their toll. Again, let's read verse 11 and 12. I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like the birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. A whole generation of the most talented individuals, along with the rest of society, confronted insurmountable odds of achieving success, being swept up in a worldwide depression and, and world war in the 1930s and 40s. 
these people face the fact that they just happened to be born in the wrong time in the wrong place and there's nothing they could have done about it they were literally swept up into it as a fish is swept into the net millions of folks didn't get their 85 years as their lives were cut short by circumstances of that time fortunes were wiped out overnight in the depression and in the war we saw complete cities destroyed it was not a fantastic time from the world's perspective the only thing we can do as Christians is to trust that the Lord has placed us here at this time, at this place, for His purpose. And we need to trust Him that this is all part of His plan. Jeremiah 29, 11, the often quoted verse says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This verse, when quoted in ESV, doesn't promise our personal prosperity or success as some would profess. But it does indicate that we do need to trust God as he provides what we need in our lives to fulfill his purposes. Our success here should be measured in our level of trust in God and not the outcome of our work. So to summarize our first point, we should be thankful to be where God has placed us in time and place, put our trust in Him to provide the resources we need to do the tasks or work that He has put before us, doing it with the joy and enthusiasm. Moving on to our uh, next verse, our next sermon point is work with no expectation of appreciation. Let's read 913 up to chapter 10 1 to 3 I have also seen this example of wisdom under the Sun and it seemed great to me there was a little city with few men in it and a great king came along and besieged it building great siege works against it but there was found in it a poor wise man and he by his wisdom delivered the city yet nobody remembered that poor man but I say wisdom is better than might through the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everybody that he is a fool. As you can probably tell from today, and if you just talk to me in general, that I'm a bit of a history buff. One of the most remarkable things I learned in the last few years was that Winston Churchill was bounced out of office in a general election not even two months after the European campaign of World War II was completed. This to me was unfathomable. A man whose wisdom and personality led the nation and the Commonwealth to victory in a seemingly unwinnable war was not even elected. Long-term history has been much kinder, but the people at the time certainly were not very appreciative. Lord Moran, Churchill's personal doctor, commiserated with him on the ingratitude of the British people, to which, British, or to which Churchill said, 
I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. They've had a very hard go of it. Again, he showed his wisdom in that comment and acceptance of the public's decision. It seems incredible, but gives us a sense of reference for the story we see in verses 13 to 16 and the following verses. People quickly forget what was done for their benefit. The teacher points out in these verses that uh, the gratitude one can expect for wisdom is frequently unrewarded. It's good for us then to realize that we should not expect any before we ask for it. We should be thankful to the Lord for the wisdom that did save the day, but not look to man to, for our reward in it. As we go on to verses 18 and onwards, we see the power of wisdom disarmed by the reality of a fallen world. Wisdom is greater than might, but one, uh, one sinner destroys much. Think of the adage of the fly in the ointment as we read in verse 10.1. Who wants to drink a glass of milk from a cup that has a dead fly floating on it? It's far easier to cause a great stink than to create something beautiful. Some people just seem compelled to cause problems wherever they go. Their little folly does far more damage than the good works of many. Satan has a heyday with one sinner causing havoc in a church. We need to continue to pray for our church and leaders that folly would not be, identi would be identified and quickly dealt with. When we see the verses talking about the heart of the wise inclining to the right and the fool to the left, keep in mind this isn't a political statement. Left and right are figurative expressions for wrong and right. Just as Christ used sheep and goats to speak of those who follow him, sheeps, and those who don't, goats. So, we see that a fool tends to lean to the wrong side of life. His actions are sinful, disruptive, and even outpower him to the point that he lacks the sense and shows everybody just how silly he is with his actions and words. So, summing up this sermon point, doing well in our work may be met with a lack of appreciation or our work may be destroyed or compromised by the stupidity and sin of others. We should expect this and not become disheartened by this. The Lord isn't surprised by this, but we, he will use it for his purposes in any event. We just need to be faithful in what he's asked us to do. I'm going to temporarily bypass verses 10, 4 to 7 and go to them in another section here. But now I'm going to focus on verses 8 to 10 and have titled this sermon point, Work with Wisdom. It says, he who, fall, who he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. When I was a kid, there was a saying I grew up with, this isn't the right tool for the job. Anybody in my family knows it, knows it, and we use it to heckle each other when we try to do something stupid like standing on a chair with wheels to change the light bulb, I know because I did that, and use the handle end of a chisel to hammer in a nail, or in a variety of situations that are just really not going to end well. This quote was originated by one of my uncles, the one missing several fingers because he did use a chisel for a hammer. I think he should have taken the 
the, the work with wisdom to heart, and so should we. Most of us have heard that someone tell us, you should work smarter, not harder. Well, here in this section of scripture, it's work wiser. Not only using your brain over your brawn, but thinking it through each plan to look for unforeseen circumstances or pitfalls. Literally, as we read verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it sounds so obvious. Don't be an idiot and fall into a pit you just dug. But it has a second meaning as well. In the book of Esther, chapter 7, verses 9 to 10, we read, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house. It's 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. We see from this that sometimes plans that are born out of evil motivations can backfire and ensnare the planner. The second half of verse 8 says a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. That doesn't really resonate us with folks in Alberta, so let's put a bit of cultural context into that and draw a better understanding of what's going on. At that time in Judea, stone walls were built to mark property boundaries. These walls were built stone upon stone, which left crevices between the rocks. Snakes liked to hide in cooler spots to escape the heat of the day, and so these fences were a great spot to do that. Anybody growing up in that culture would know this, and they would want to avoid leaning up against these walls and would never think to carelessly break through because they're often going to run into a sleeping snake who's actually going to become very ticked off. How does that speak to how we handle work, both spiritually and practically? Prepare yourself carefully and proceed cautiously in situations where danger may lurk. Commit to your daily devotions in order to prepare yourself for the spiritual dangers of the day. Don't linger in spots where snares are found and have a heightened sense of the danger around you. Each of these three verses seem to have a double meaning. There's a practical aspect of being careful to avoid harm, and there's another aspect which, which shows the potential retribution of performing these tax, tasks with an evil intent. Some commentaries that I read point to a third way of looking at this, which I haven't touched upon yet. So breaking down walls, removing stones, and cutting down trees can be seen as the potential dangers of political or social reform. If people set themselves to pull down the old walls of de decaying and worthless institutions or break through the fences of time-honored customs, they must prepare themselves for being bitten by the serpents in the crannies or having the walls coming down on them or getting injured hewing stones. This relates to encountering opposition, criticism, hate, and often persecution of those you have vest who have vested interest in, in leaving those um, institutions in place. Reformers should count the cost before the beginning of their work or reformation. So this only, not only has a political, but also a, a church application as well if we look back at the rest reformation. Verse 10 says, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. This one really hits home the work smarter, not harder concept. It's kind of self-evident. The other principles that we can, can take home for this are twofold. First, every work has its own appropriate tool 
So don't use a chisel head to pound in a nail. Use a hammer. When thinking of this in a spiritual context, we must use the appropriate approach or tool for the situation. In terms of caring for Christian brothers, I am deeply impacted by verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 5. And it says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. In each of these situations, a different approach needs to be taken to aid the person, a different tool for each, as it were. Using the wrong tool or approach is going to further damage that person and potentially injure yourself as well. The second principle we can draw from this verse is that each tool must be kept in its proper operating condition. We should not let our acts get dull or don't bother to regularly change the oil in our cars. For our Christian work, we ourselves should not get rusty. Proper spiritual disciplines should be taken place all the time, every day. We need to be sharp and ready at any time to do the work that we've been called to do, not just on the Sundays. All these verses do not say that disasters are inevitable, but are possibilities, like the time and chance that we mentioned in verse 911. So let us reduce the opportunity for time and chance disasters by thinking through our plans. To sum up the sermon point, wisdom is the difference between success and failure in our work. If we want success, we must use our God-given intelligence and do the work God's way and not our own. Our next sermon point is to use words that glorify the Lord as we look in verse 11 to 14. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be, and who can tell him what it will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know how the way to the city. It doesn't take long in our lives to come across people who are gossipers. These are the people we see in, as serpents in verse 11 to 13. Our words are powerful. If you read in James 3, 6, and it says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Gossipers have venomous tongues, and we have all seen and experienced the damage that this type of person can do. The teacher gives us advice how to deal with these types of conversations in a godly way. We are to be circumspect, guarded, and considerate when talking to them, and speaking to them in this manner at least may not add fuel to their fires. The problem with the fool described in these verses is not that they are intellectually lacking, it's just that they, don't, they have chosen to reject God. Thus, their thinking is all wrong. No thoughts are thought through uh, with a knee bending to the acknowledgement or the existence of the Lord. Each thought is self-focused, self-centered, and ultimately evil. They can't help themselves. A fool may even appear to seem all right. Well, that is until they open their mouth 
and a few a few a fool's words destroy him let's contrast that with a christian a christian should be a blessing for believers and unbelievers to talk to our words are to be kind and helpful warm winsome and gracious they should point people to god to glorify him our words, our words should reiterate the fact that we have bowed our knee to acknowledge the sovereignty of the Lord in our lives. Our final sermon point today is work with respecting your employer. For this section, we're going to go back to verses 10, 4 to 7, and then we're going to jump to the end of uh, verses 16 to 20. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the, the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. And then moving on to verse 16, Woe to you, Lord, woe to you, O land, where your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creatures tell the matter. The reason to be submissive to an unfair master in verse 4 is that his anger may be diminished or even calmed by our own wise behavior. There's no winning if both you and your boss are at the point of anger. We read in Proverbs 25, 15, with patience a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. And then in Proverbs 15:1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Some of you in the business world may be familiar with the Peter Principle, which is a concept in management developed by Lawrence Peter. It observes that people in a hierarchy tend to rise to a level of respective incompetence. So basically, employees are promoted based on their success in the previous jobs until they reach a level which they're no longer competent as their skills in the previous job don't translate to the new one. This sounds like what's happened in verses 5 to 7. So what do we do as Christians if we find ourselves in these types of situations? We would be wise to swallow our pride and continue doing our best with enthusiasm to the Lord. Think of it this way. If we indulge our own self-righteousness and pride and abandon all efforts at work, it does disservice to the Lord. And then whoever replaces us after we leave may do a far worse destructive job of it. In verses 16 to 20, we are all affected by the tone set by those who sit in leadership positions. This holds true for nations, companies, and even churches. Laziness, incompetence, or moral failure in leadership in any form of organization will ultimately cause problems and may even lead to collapse. 
The child in verse 16 refers to one in leadership who has gained the position of authority without really accepting its responsibility. When an immature person rules, it will be problematic soon enough. We can see that immaturity in the following verses and the behavior the king is engaged in. However foolish they are, they do have a sixth sense for anticipating who their enemies are, we see in verse 20. So even if the leader is unworthy of respect, the office he holds should be honored. He is still the servant of God, even if he's painfully unaware of that fact. Paul shows us that under Nero, Paul had an undying love for righteousness and a complete hatred of iniquity, and yet he was not wanting in showing respect to this horrific king. So that begs the question, how do we work with with people when we're under foolish leadership. Being placed in this time frame at this particular location and circumstances is all part of God's plan. We may not understand why and see the benefit of it years to come, but be wise. Don't even think, let alone speak bad words against your employer. Be gracious with all your words. Do your work heartily to the best of your abilities, working intelligently and wisely, using the resources you have at hand. Remember, you're ultimately working for the Lord in this. So to close today, this sermon has been encouraging us to be wiser and less foolish in our words and really in all areas of our lives. But what makes it any difference for us as Christians than anybody else who prescribes these principles? The difference is Christ because of the gospel. And remember, weeks ago we said the gospel is four words. God, man, Christ, response. A perfect God, holy, cannot look upon sin. Man, that's all we are, is sinful. We need a a mediator, and that is Christ, fully God and fully man. He has paid the price of our sin penalty. We, however, do have to respond to the gospel, admitting that we cannot do it on our own strength, and that we need Christ, and we accept his gift as a way to be reconciled to God. So Christ, because of his sacrifice, has given us new life, a new heart, and a new focus. Ezekiel eleven nineteen promises us, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart, or I will remove their heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Christ will do the work, change our desires, and give us the ability to live wisely with his wisdom and not to continue to our man-centered wisdom, which is the heart of foolishness. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your wisdom, but most of all, your sacrifice. Without it, we cannot do anything out of a true wisdom, but all will be folly. Please grant us the ability to grasp this truth and to trust you in all areas of our lives. To Christ be the glory and whose name we pray. Amen.